0: was on retreat with his disciples in the town of Caesarea Philippi when one day he asked them, who do men say that I am? Well, the disciples came back with the most recent Gallup tracking poll. They said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. It's intriguing, though, to me that there were some people who mistook Jesus, the Son of God, for Jeremiah. What a compliment to the prophet Jeremiah. He lived 600 years before Christ, but he must have been very Christ-like. In fact, Jeremiah was one of the godliest men in all the Bible. The irony, though, is that despite the fact that Jeremiah was highly esteemed among the first century Jews... The Jews in Jesus' day, in his own day, in the 6th century B.C., Jeremiah was much maligned and persecuted. This man was a priest, a prophet, a patriot. Jeremiah maintained a deep intimacy with God. He spoke boldly the words that God would have him speak. He interceded with God on behalf of his people. And yet the Jews of his day turned a deaf ear to Jeremiah. They refused to listen to his message. In fact, they tried to shut him up on more than one occasion. First, by slinging mud at him. Finally, by sinking him in the mud. Chapter 36 continues the saga of Jeremiah and his attempts to deal with the Jews. But first, the prophet shifts gears and he gives us a story of another group of people known as the Rechabites. Chapter 35 begins... The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim the son of Josiah king of Judah saying Now we've mentioned this before but remember this book is not in chronological order the days of Jehoiakim were 18 years earlier than the events involving King Zedekiah back in chapter 34 God speaks though, to Jeremiah Go to the house of the Rechabites speak to them And bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. Then I took Jazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, his brothers and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites. Now these Rechabites were an interesting group of people. They weren't true Hebrews. They were Kenites. They were a branch of the Midianites a collection of nomadic tribes. In fact, these were the descendants of Jethro, who you remember became Moses' father-in-law after he had left Egypt the first time and married Yvonne de Carlo. I mean, Zipporah. Jethro became his father-in-law. Technically, the Rechabites were Gentiles who seem to have been assimilated into the Israelite family due to their connection with their forefather, Jethro. Incidentally, the Jeremiah in verse 3 is not our Jeremiah. We know that the prophet was never married and thus never had a son. This man was a Rechabite. The Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah writes, And I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. Now around the outside of the temple's inner court, there were various chambers or meeting rooms where different interest groups would gather to conduct temple business. I imagine there was a chamber for the ushers. They had their flashlights and their traffic vests and their cones for the parking lot all in the their little chamber. And then there was the chamber for the women's ministry. And can you imagine the leftover frou-frou that was just brimming and pouring out of the women's ministry chamber? And then, of course, coloring books and crayons and all the rest in the chamber for the children's ministry. These chambers were sort of like an administrative wing for the temple. Well, these Rechabites were brought into one of these rooms Now verse 5 tells us this must have been sort of a test. He says, Then I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites, bowls full of wine and cups, and said to them, Drink wine. But they said, We will drink no wine. For Jonabab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, You shall drink no wine, you nor your sons, forever. You shall not build a house, sow seed, plant a vineyard, nor have any of these, but all your days you shall dwell in tents, that you may live many days in the land where you are sojourners. Now, Jonadab, the father of the Rechabites, lived in Israel shortly after the time of the wicked king Ahab. In fact, Jonadab helped King Jehu put an end to this vile worship of Baal. That was going on in the northern kingdom. And this man gave to his heirs a few prohibitions. The Rechabites weren't to drink wine. Neither were they to build homes or plant fields and vineyards. They weren't to settle down in essence. They were to live a nomadic lifestyle. Apparently, the Rechabites were somewhat like the Nazarites. Perhaps you remember the vow of the Nazarite. John the Baptist, Samson, took the vow of the Nazarite. In Israel, there were men who took this special vow to God. The Nazarite vow included three prohibitions. Not to touch the fruit of the vine, the grapes or the wine, not to cut your hair, and not to touch anything that was dead. The Nazarite, in essence, was a walking billboard for the values of God. They were to avoid cocktails, clips, and cemeteries. You see, wine represented physical pleasure. Hair is a part of outward beauty, at least for some of you that have it. A corpse reminds us of life's brevity. And thus, to avoid wine was to seek spiritual pleasure over physical pleasure. To forego a haircut was to value inward beauty over outward beauty. And to steer clear of corpses and funerals was to set your sights on eternity rather than on the here and now. In essence, the Nazarite's life was an advertisement for godly living. He was saying real pleasure is to be found in spiritual things, not physical. Real beauty is inward rather than outward. And real meaning is found in eternity, not on earth, in the here and now. Now, the vow of the Rechabites was not as extensive as that of the Nazarites, but it too majored on avoiding wine and not planting vineyards. Wine, of course, is a symbol of earthly physical pleasure. And though the Bible allows wine in moderation, the Scriptures warn us repeatedly of its dangers. It warns us that wine can lead us astray. The Rechabite vow, vow also included The idea of sinking roots or settling down. Essentially, their lifestyle was to be nomadic. They weren't to get comfortable in this world, in this life. Like Christians today, they were to see themselves as pilgrims and as strangers on the earth. They should live like citizens of heaven, not citizens of earth. The Rechabites had been faithful to their vow for 300 years. In fact, they continue in verse 8. Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Jacob, Rechab, Rechab, our father, in all that he charged us, to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in, nor do we have vineyards, fields, or seed. But we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. And so for three centuries... They had kept their father's commands. They had been an example to the people around them. And even now, as they're tested by Jeremiah, these faithful Rechabites remain resolute. They refuse to drink the wine. They continue, in fact, in verse 11. But it came to pass when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up into the land that we said, Come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans... And for fear of the army of the Assyrians, and so we dwell at Jerusalem. In other words, the only reason that they had entered the city, that they had settled down within the city walls, was because the Babylonian army was outside. And they had come to the city seeking protection. Then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction to obey my word, says the Lord? The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed, for to this day they drink none and obey their father's commandment. But although I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, you did not obey me. I have also sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, Turn now every one from his evil way, amend your doings, and do not go after other gods to serve them. Then you will dwell in the land which I have given you and your fathers, but you have not inclined your ear, nor obeyed me. Surely the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them, but this people has not obeyed me. And here God is using the Rechabites to prick the conscience of the Jews. For 300 years, the Rechabites had been faithful to their father's calling, and yet the Jews couldn't remain faithful and obedient to their father God for just a few weeks. That's the point he's making. Verse 17 continues, Therefore thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on Judah and on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the doom that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them, but they have not heard. And I have called to them, but they have not answered. And Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father, and kept all his precepts, and done according to all that he commanded you. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. Because they were faithful, because they were obedient, God will favor the Rechabites forever. You know, God loves an obedient heart. God loves a child of His who's willing to put His word into action, who's willing to do the things that God tells him to do. God loves obedience. What parent doesn't love obedience? When we tell our kids to do something and they're quick to do it, oh my, we're proud, we're happy, we're excited. We think they're finally getting it. What father, what mother doesn't prize obedience in their child? And you've got to know, this is how God sees his children. He looks for us to be obedient, to trust his word, to put it into practice, Here, because of their obedience, the Rechabites will always have a representative before God. According to the Jewish Mishnah, the Rechabites had a special day of the year where it was their honor to collect firewood for the altar in the temple. It was a way of making them a participant in the temple service year in and year out. I suppose there will be a descendant of Jonadab hanging out around the throne in heaven when we get there. Someone there representing the Rechabites. They'll probably have a special place in Jesus' administration when he returns to earth. God says that Jonadab, the son of Rechab shall not lack a man man to stand before me forever. Chapter 36. Now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, The fourth year of Jehoiakim was 605 B.C., This was the first occasion when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians threatened Jerusalem. This was about 19 years before the final fall of the city, about halfway through the 40-year ministry of the prophet Jeremiah. Verse 2 tells us, God told Jeremiah, take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah and against all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah even to this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all of the adversities which I purpose to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Now the Jews had turned a deaf ear to Jeremiah's verbal warnings. But perhaps if they had a book, Jeremiah is here to self-publish God's messages that he's given through him to the people. He's to put them together, compile all of his messages, and put them together in a book. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah. Baruch was Jeremiah's assistant. And Baruch wrote on a scroll of a book at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. And it was quite a compilation. You remember he had his temple sermons that he had preached in the temple, warning them of their hypocrisy. He had other sermons that he had preached throughout his life. This was quite a compilation, probably several volumes. Now, Baruch was the stenographer. And he took dictation from Jeremiah. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I am confined... I cannot go into the house of the Lord. Apparently, he had been banned from the temple for some reason. And so, you go, therefore, and read from the scroll which you have written at my instruction, the words of the Lord in the hearing of the people in the Lord's house on the day of fasting. And you shall also read them in the hearing of all Judah who come from their cities. Now, apparently, this day of fasting was called by the leaders of the nation in response to the national crisis that they were facing. Remember, the Babylonians are camped just outside the walls. They have invaded the land. They're a threat to their welfare. And so they call for a day of fasting to pray for God's deliverance. Of course, such an event would attract a huge crowd. The temple would be packed with people on this day. Baruch would have a captive audience in order to read this book. Verse 7. It may be that they will present their supplication before the Lord, and everyone will turn from his evil way, for great is the anger and the fury that the Lord has pronounced against this people. And Baruch the son of Neriah did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading from the book the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. Next is the play-by-play of what happens. Now it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, that is the month of December, our month of December, that they proclaimed a fast before the Lord to all the people in Jerusalem and to all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem. Likely it was a cool day, Jerusalem in December, probably lots of sweaters in the crowd. It was really a perfect day to stand outside in a crowd and listen to public oratory. Then Baruch read from the book the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord, in the chamber of Jemariah, the son of Shaphan, the scribe, in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house, in the hearing of all the people. Verse 11. And when Micaiah, the son of Jemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the book, he then went down to the king's house, into the scribe's chamber, and there all the princes were sitting, Elishama the scribe, Deliah the son of El Nathan the son of Achbor, Jemariah the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah the son of Hananiah, and all the princes. Then Micaiah declared to them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the book in the hearing of the people. Therefore all the princes set, sent Jehudi the son of Nethaniah the son of Shalemiah, the son of Cushai, to Baruch, saying, Take in your hand the scroll from which you have read in the hearing of the people, and come. And so Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hand and came to them. And they said to him, Sit down now and read it in our hearing. So Baruch read it in their hearing. Now, he had read it publicly in open-air fashion there in the courts of the temple. But now Baruch holds a private screening for the king's cabinet, basically. Here's a message that the leaders really need to hear. And they've called for him now in private quarters to hear this, where they can concentrate on what he really has to say. Verse 16. Now it happened when they had heard all the words that they looked in fear from one to another and said to Baruch, We will surely tell the king all these words. Now now remember, the king knew these words. He had heard Jeremiah preaching. And yet he had rejected the prophet's counsel. But his cabinet was smart enough to know, hey, these, these are relevant words. These are words that we need to hear. We need to take heed to. Let's bring these to the king. And they asked Baruch, saying, tell us now, how did you write all these words? At his instruction In other words, they're wanting to verify authorship. If they take this to the king, they want to make sure that it was written by Jeremiah. And so Baruch answered them, He proclaimed with his mouth all these words to me, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Then the princes said to Baruch, Go and hide you and Jeremiah, and let no one know where you are. Now they're looking out for the prophet here. They know that his message is not going to sit well with the king. In fact, the king could get violent. This could become hazardous to Jeremiah's health. And so they tell Baruch to go, he and Jeremiah, and to hide until the smoke clears. Verse 20. And they went to the king into the court. But they stored the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the scribe and told all the words in the hearing of the king. So the king sent Jehudi to bring the scroll, and he took it from Elishama, the scribe's chamber, and Jehudi read it in the hearing of the king and in the hearing of all the princes who stood beside the king. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month. Remember, it was December. It was chilly that day with a fire burning on the hearth before him. Imagine the king, he's keeping warm by the fire, stoking a fresh fire. He's probably wearing his slippers and his bathrobe, his feet's propped up, he's kind of hanging out in the royal recliner, enjoying a hot bowl of sherry's chili. Might have even been roasting a few marshmallows. And it happened when Jehudi had read three or four columns that the king cut it with the scribe's knife. And cast it into the fire that was on the hearth. Until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Wow. King Jehoiakim cuts up God's word and throws it in the fire. He didn't even let Jehudi finish. All it took was three or four columns to infuriate the king. Jehoiakim, he grabs the book from Baruch. He takes a knife, a scribe's knife, and he cuts it into pieces and then he throws it in the flames. Have you ever run across a critic of Christianity in the Bible who has rejected it without even reading it through? They'd made up their minds in advance. Their attitude was, oh, why let the facts interfere with my prejudice? They're certainly not seeking the truth. Their goal is to back up their own bias. This was King Jehoiakim. He didn't even let him read the whole message. Only after three or four columns, he cut it up and threw it in the fire. And think of the ways that people today cut up the Bible. It's done by liars, by liberals, and by the lukewarm. Liars, of course, are the cultists who deny doctrines clearly taught in Scripture. They cut and paste. They twist and torture to make the Bible say what it was never meant to say. Tonight, in kingdom halls and in Mormon wards, rather than let the Bible mean what it says, it's being sliced and diced to fit into someone's bias and false doctrine. The same is done in liberal circles in the name of what's called higher criticism, where scholars dare to tell us what is and isn't the reliable Word of God. These people have an anti-supernatural bias so that anything in the text that smacks of a miracle gets rejected offhand. It's arbitrary and arrogant. It's the equivalent of grabbing the book in anger and cutting it up with a knife and eliminating whatever makes you feel uncomfortable. This is so disingenuous. It reminds me of the atheistic professor who asked his class satirically. He said, how did Jonah possibly survive in the belly of a whale? A young Christian student in his class replied, He says, Well, I don't know, but when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. The professor smarted off. He said, Well, what if Jonah isn't in heaven? The Christian replied, Well, then you ask him. <laughs> It's interesting, King Jehoiakim cut up the scroll before he threw it in the fire. Did you know He cut it up before he threw it in the fire. And this is what liberals do today. They don't just reject the Bible and throw it in the fire. They first have to try to cut it up. They have to try to dissect it and discredit its authority. It's not enough for liberals just to dismiss the Bible. They want to first mock it and refute it and discredit it. This last century. The Bible has been under attack. The documentary hypothesis, the deutero-Isaiah theories, late dates ascribed to Daniel, the Jesus seminar today. There's the search for the historical Jesus. There's many postmodern takes on the scriptures. These are all efforts to cast doubt on God's word. And I believe the warning that Jesus gave to the false teachers in his day applies today. Matthew chapter 18, verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. And yet perhaps the worst example of a modern day Jehoiakim is the pastor who believes the Bible to be God's inerrant word Yet rather than teach the whole counsel of God, he only addresses those portions that are his favorites, that'll make the people feel good, that won't spark any controversy. Hey, you don't even have to dull your blade. You can just eliminate whole passages of Scripture by never dealing with them. If the baptism of the Holy Spirit offends someone, well then just don't go there or if the reality of hell is going to make people uncomfortable, well, then just don't touch those passages. Just avoid them. Don't go there. You know, we as Christians often make the same mistake by always reading those passages that comfort us to the neglect of others that might challenge us. For some of us, our little highlighters have become the equivalent of the scribe's knife. Paul told the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And never forget, it is the whole counsel that we need. It takes a whole Bible to make whole Christians. We are responsible for all of the book. Reminds me of the son who went off to seminary. His father was worried about the school's liberal leanings and what it might do to his son's faith. Before he left home, dad said to his boy he said don't let them take Jonah from you the dad knew that Jonah contains many miraculous elements which made it a favorite target for the liberals when his son came home his dad asked him he said do you still have Jonah the boy said no dad I don't and neither do you the dad was appalled he said I certainly do he said oh no you don't dad you don't have Jonah in your Bible anymore just go and check The father retrieved his Bible, he opened it up, and sure enough, the book of Jonah had been ripped out of his Bible. The son said, I did that before I left for seminary. For what's the difference if I lose Jonah through doubt and you lose Jonah through neglect? Hey, we too can cut and paste by just overlooking and neglecting certain parts of Scripture that are important for us. It takes a whole Bible. To make a whole Christian. Well back to Jehoiakim verse 24. Yet they were not afraid. Nor did they tear their garments. The king nor any of his servants who heard all these words. My they should have been afraid. They should have been afraid of the righteous hand of God. To dare to take his word and cut it up. And throw it in the fire. Nevertheless El Nathan did. Delaiah and Jemariah implored the king not to burn the scroll, but he would not listen to them. Even his counselors saw the dangers of his actions. And the king commanded Jer- Jerahamiel, the king's son. I'm going to apologize to these guys one day for, for really uh, twisting up their names. Zerahiah, the son of Azrael, and Shilemiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet. But the Lord had hid them. And I like those words. The Lord had hid them. God takes care of His servants, doesn't He? He protects His people. Jeremiah and Baruch had laid low. It was a good thing. The king reacted just as his men thought he would. Remember back in chapter 1, when God first called the prophet Jeremiah. He said of kings and princes and priests and people, He said, They will fight against you, Jeremiah, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you to deliver you. And here God is fulfilling the original promise that He had made to His servant Jeremiah. He was delivering Jeremiah in His moment of crisis. Verse 27. Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words which Baruch had written at the instruction of Jeremiah... The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Take yet another scroll, and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And you shall say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Thus says the Lord, You have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land, and cause man and beast to cease from here? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. I will punish him, his family, and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring on them the inhabitants, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem and on the men of Judah all the doom that I have pronounced against them, but they did not heed. Jehoiakim's son, Jeconiah, reigned just three months before he was taken off to Babylon. That left Jehoiakim with no one left to sit on the throne. God's word to Jehoiakim was fulfilled. The final king of Judah was his brother, not his son, Zedekiah. Well, then Jeremiah took another scroll, and he gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the instruction of Jeremiah, Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And besides, there were added to them many similar words. Jehoiakim's attempt to destroy God's word was thwarted, as have all other attacks since that time. In 300 AD, the Roman emperor Diocletian ordered the destruction of all Bibles in the empire. Possessing a Bible was a capital crime. And yet, 50 years after Diocletian's death, the next Roman emperor ordered the copying of 50 new Bibles paid for at government's expense. Over and over and over again, God has supernaturally preserved His Word down through the centuries. Kings have come and gone, but the Word of God abides forever. Despite a myriad of enemies and a plethora of attacks, The Bible remains. It has proven indestructible. Here's a few excerpts from a poem by A.Z. Conrad. He writes, Century follows century. There it stands. Empires rise and fall and are forgotten. Kings are crowned and uncrowned. Emperors decree its extermination. There it stands. Storms of hate swirl about it. Atheists rail against it. Agnostics smile cynically. Profane punsters caricature it. There it stands. Unbelief abandons it. Higher critics deny it. The tooth of time gnaws but dents it not. Infidels predict its abandonment. Modernism tries to explain it away. But There it stands. It is the light on the pathway in the darkest night. It awakens men and women numb by sin. It answers every question of the soul. Salvation is its watchword. Eternal life is its goal. It is forward-looking, outward-looking, and upward-looking. It outlives, outlifts, outloves, outreaches, outranks, and outruns all other books. Trust it. Love it. Obey it. And eternal life is yours. Well said. The Word of God. Don't take it for granted. God has given us His Word. We need to treasure it and study it and most of all, obey it. Well, chapter 37, fast forward to a later day. Now King Zedekiah, this is the last of Judah's kings, the son of Josiah, reigned instead of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land gave heed to the words of the Lord which he spoke by the prophet Jeremiah. And that sort of summarizes the whole book right there. Nobody listened to Jeremiah. And Zedekiah the king sent Jehuchal, the son of Shilamiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Masaiah, to the priest, the priest to the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Pray now to the Lord our God for us. Now here's another example of what what we talked about earlier. Panic piety. Panic piety. The Jews had rejected Jeremiah's message for 40 years. In fact, they tried to silence him. They even wanted to kill him at one point. But now they're in trouble. In the days of King Zedekiah, the, the Babylonians are camped right outside the walls. They're breathing down their necks. The destruction of the city seems inevitable. And so now that they're in trouble, they come to him for prayer. Oh, please, Jeremiah, intercede for us. And isn't that a lot of like people that we know? Oh, they don't have time for God when things are going well. But all of a sudden, they lose their job. They have marital problems. They get into trouble here or there. And all of a sudden, it's like, wow, I need to hear what God has to say. I need to see God in my life. It's panic piety. Now, it's a good thing if it remains genuine and if it's something the person sticks with. But but if they just seek God when they're in trouble and then when the circumstances are removed, then they go back to their evil ways, then then it's been a fruitless endeavor. Well, verse 4 tells us, Now Jeremiah was coming and going among the people, for they had not yet put him in prison. Then Pharaoh's army came up from Egypt, And when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news of them, they departed from Jerusalem. Now this gave the Jews false hope. Pharaoh Hophra had marched his army north to confront the Babylonians. And so Nebuchadnezzar had withdrawn his troops from the walls around Jerusalem temporarily to deal with the Egyptians. But when the Jews saw the Babylonians pull out, They started rejoicing. The trouble's over. The prophets were right. Jeremiah was wrong. God has brought peace and safety to Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold Pharaoh's army, which has come up to help you, will return to Egypt, to their own land. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city, and take it, and burn it with fire. Wait a minute, you're not out of the woods yet. Thus says the Lord, Do not deceive yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans shall surely depart from us, for they will not depart. For though you had defeated the whole army of the Chaldeans who fight against you, And there remained only wounded men among them. They would rise up, every man in his tent, and burn this city with fire. In other words, Jeremiah, your problem, the problem of the people is not the Babylonians, but God. Babylon was just God's tool to bring judgment. Their destiny had been ordained by God. You know, at times we think our problem is our circumstances. And if our surroundings change... Wow, then we'll be all right. But seldom is that true. Most of the time, our problem is not our job or our spouse or our kids or our school or our work. It's probably us. It could be that our conflict is not with the people around us, but with God. That was the case with the people of Judah. Verse 11, and it happened when the army of the Chaldeans left the siege of Jerusalem, for fear of Pharaoh's army, that Jeremiah went out of Jerusalem to go into the land of Benjamin to claim his property there among the people. Now, you remember, this was the piece of property that he had purchased back in chapter 32. This was a symbol of his faith in God's promise that one day the people would return to the land. You remember, he had bought this piece of property in order to say to the people that we're going to one day inhabit this and possess this. First, though, we're going to be judged and we're going to be taken to Babel. And yet for the moment, the invaders are now gone. And so Jeremiah sees this as an opportunity to go out and check on this piece of property that he's bought. Verse 13, and when he was in the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the guard was there whose name was Uriah, the son of Shemaliah, the son of Hananiah. And he sees Jeremiah the prophet saying, You are defecting to the Chaldeans. Notice this Ariah's ancestry. He was the grandson of a man named Hananiah. Does that ring a bell? This was Jeremiah's old adversary. You remember the false prophet who broke the yoke that Jeremiah wore into the temple? And who refuted his message, who rebutted what he was saying? That was Hananiah. Hananiah had said that Babylon would be toppled in two years. Jeremiah said that Hananiah would be dead within a year. Guess who was right? Hananiah died in two months. Now Hananiah's grandson, this Ariah, arrests Jeremiah, accuses him of defecting to the Babylonians. He accuses the prophet of treason, of defecting to the enemy, Uriah is carrying out a personal vendetta against Jeremiah. And then Jeremiah said, false, I am not defecting to the Chaldeans. But he did not listen to him. So Uriah seized Jeremiah and brought him to the princes. Therefore the princes were angry with Jeremiah, and they struck him and put him in prison in the house of Jonathan the scribe, for they had made that the prison. And don't gloss over the word struck without knowing what it implies. The Jewish beating consisted of 39 lashes with a cat-of-nine-tails, a whip of multiple cords, each cord embedded with bone or ivory. The cords would rip open the victim's back. Many a man died just from this punitive striking. Prophet Jeremiah has been beaten. He's now chained in a dark, cold, damp, rat-infested hellhole called a prison. Verse 16 tells us, And when Jeremiah entered the dungeon and the sails, and Jeremiah had remained there many days, then Zedekiah the king sent and took him out. The king asked him secretly in his house and said, Is there any word from the Lord? This was quite a scene. Imagine the king in all of his pomp, and all of his circumstance, sitting there on his throne, clothed in his royal robes and golden crown, and standing across from the king is this old man, shivering from the cold. His body's bloody. He's wounded. What a contrast. This evil king and this man of God. And this meeting has been arranged secretly, covertly, Zedekiah doesn't want to seem dependent on the man of God. He doesn't want anybody to know he's consulted with Jeremiah. And yet he knows that Jeremiah speaks for God. And so he says, is there any word from the Lord? In years past, this king's glory had been his wisdom, had been his might, had been his riches. But now the enemy outside his walls And his defeat, are almost certain. Now that that's true, his wisdom and his riches and his might aren't as important as he thought they were, or at least they were to him at one time. In fact, now his riches are worthless to him. What good are, are the riches? What good is the strength? What good is his wisdom if he's taken captive to Babylon? He would gladly trade them all for what Jeremiah possesses, which is a relationship with God, which is the true knowledge of God. And and yet what Jeremiah had in the moment of crisis had been his goal from the beginning. He had taken heed to God's counsel in chapter 9, verse 23. You remember back in chapter 9, the Lord declared, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. Rather than riches or wisdom or might Jeremiah had sought to know God. And now what Jeremiah possesses not what the king has is suddenly in great demand. If you seek after God Instead of this material world, people will mock you. People will think you're crazy for a time. But when the chips are down, when a crisis comes, if you know God, you'll be the first person they'll turn to. Guess who they'll come for counsel? Guess who they'll come to for advice? It'll be you. It's the man of God. It's the man who knows God. We've mentioned King Zedekiah in previous passages, but we get a real glimpse into his true personality and his character here in these next few chapters. Sadly, this man was a wimp. This was a king in name only. He was royal only in terms of title. He was the type of man who would agree with the last person he talked to. I mean, he was easily swayed. He started out pro-Babylonian. It was Nebuchadnezzar who put him in power, but he inherited a pro-Egyptian cabinet. And so for many years, he tried to play both sides, tried to appease everyone, anyone and everyone. Zedekiah was the quintessential politician. He was like a weather vane. He was turned by the currents, the prevailing winds. Zedekiah actually had a great respect for Jeremiah the prophet. He knew Jeremiah was a true man of God. He always wanted to know what Jeremiah had to say. Zedekiah recognized him as God's spokesman. But the king lacked the guts to follow through on Jeremiah's guidance. Here, he sets up an interview, but he does so privately, secretly. Because he doesn't want to be seen consulting with Jeremiah. He seeks the prophet's wisdom, but... He keeps him aloof publicly. He fears the scorn and ridicule that he'll receive if he appears to be too chummy with Jeremiah. That's why he calls for this secret audience. Ultimately, this Zedekiah, he was more interested in the political ramifications than he was in spiritual commitments. Do you know anybody like that? Who's more concerned with the politics than being standing on conviction? It's been said a politician is an animal who can sit on a fence and keep both ears to the ground. That sort of sums up King Zedekiah. He lacked the courage to obey what he knew was right, and his efforts to compromise will eventually cost him his kingdom, his crown, his family, even his eyes, probably even his soul. So, King Zedekiah, he asked the prophet, is there any word from the Lord? And verse 17 tells us, And Jeremiah said, There is. Then he said, You shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. It's the same message he would proclaimed for months. It just wasn't the message that Zedekiah wanted to hear. One thing is for sure, Jeremiah's response took tremendous courage. The prophet refuses to soften up God's words to the king. Not one iota. He's straight up. He's bold. He tells him straight what God has said. Verse 18. Moreover, Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, What offense have I committed against you, against your servants, or against this people, that you have put me in prison? Where now are your prophets, who prophesied to you, saying, the king of Babylon will not come against you or against this land. What about the lying prophets that you've been listening to? Why don't you go and talk to them? Why are you calling me into the bringing me up from the prison and calling me into your quarters? Therefore, please hear now, O oh my Lord the king. Please let me petition. Let my petition be accepted before you, and do not make me return to the house of Jonathan the scribe, lest I die there. Apparently, this dungeon that he had been in, had been really hard on Jeremiah. Think about it. The guy was getting old. And these conditions were brutal. If he had had to return there, he probably would have died. Maybe died from hypothermia. Who knows? Jeremiah pleads with the king for a reassignment. Verse 21. Then Zedekiah the king commanded that they should commit Jeremiah to the court of the prison And that they should give him daily a piece of bread from the baker's street until all the bread in the city was gone. And thus Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. So he was still in prison, but now he was sort of moved to minimum security. And he was ordered a daily ration of bread. doesn't sound like much to us, but compared to what he had been eating, a piece of bread from the baker's street, from the main market, would have been a nutritional feast. And so the king's mercy probably saved Jeremiah's life. And there we have chapters 35 through 37. We're going to tackle chapter...